Poirot did not return that night. I was getting anxious that his grand meeting that he had planned with all its styles would fall through when he walked through the door just minutes prior to the planned start time, with his eyes glowing a bright cat green. The little man was transformed. He radiated an absurd complacency. He bowed with exaggerated prospect to Mary Cavendish. Uh, Madame, I have your permission to hold the little reunion in the salon? You know, Monsieur Poirot, that you have carte blanche in every way. You are too amiable, madame. Miss Howard, here. Uh, Mademoiselle Cynthia, Monsieur Lawrence, Dr. Bowerstein, the good Dorcas, and Annie. Bien, uh, we must delay our proceedings a few minutes until Mr. Inglethorpe arrives. I have sent him a note. If that man comes into the house, I leave it. No, no, Madame Evie. It is most essential that you are here. We will wait right over here. Mr. Cavendish, will you stick close by me, won't you? Assuredly. I'm most hopeful that Monsieur Poirot can clear up this confusion for us once and for all. And I can put this behind me. I hope so, too. Truly. Ah, Mr. Inglethorpe, won't you come and sit down? Messieurs, Madames, as you all know, I was called in by Monsieur John Cavendish to investigate this case. I at once examined the bedroom of the deceased, which, by the advice of the doctors, had been kept locked, and was consequently exactly as it had been when the tragedy occurred. I found, first, a fragment of green material, second, a stain on the carpet near the window, still damp, thirdly, an empty box of bromide powders. To take the fragment of green material first, I found it caught in the bolt of the communicating door between that room and the adjoining one occupied by Mademoiselle Cynthia. I handed the fragment over to the police, who did not consider it of much importance. Nor did they recognize it for what it was. A piece torn from a Greenland armlet. Now, there was only one person at Styles who worked on the land, Mrs. Cavendish. Therefore, it must have been Mrs. Cavendish who entered the deceased rooms through the door communicating with Mademoiselle Cynthia's room. But that door was bolted on the inside. When I examined the room, yes. But in the first place, we have only her word for it, since it was she who tried that particular door and reported it fastened. In the ensuing confusion, she would have had ample opportunity to shoot the bolt across. I took an early opportunity of verifying my conjectures. To begin with, The fragment corresponds exactly with a tear in Mrs. Cavendish's armlet. Also, at the inquest, Mrs. Cavendish declared that she had heard from her own room the fall of the table by the bed. I took an early opportunity of testing that statement by stationing my friend, Monsieur Hastings, in the left wing of the building just outside Mrs. Cavendish's door. I myself in company with the police, went to the deceased's room, and whilst there I, apparently, accidentally, knocked over the table in question, but found that, as I had expected, 
Monsieur Hastings had heard no sound at all. This confirmed my belief that Mrs. Cavendish was not speaking the truth when she declared that she had been dressing in her room at that time of the tragedy. In fact, I was convinced that, far from having been in her own room, Mrs. Cavendish was actually in the deceased's room when the alarm was given. I proceeded to reason on that assumption. Mrs. Cavendish is in her mother-in-law's room. We will say that she is seeking for something and has not yet found it. Suddenly, Mrs. Inglethorpe awakens and is seized with an alarming paroxysm. She flings out her arm, overturning the bed table, and then pulls desperately at the bell. And Mrs. Cavendish, startled, drops her candle, scattering the grease on the carpet. She picks it up and retreats quickly to Mademoiselle Cynthia's room, closing the door behind her. She hurries out into the passage, for the servants must not find her where she is. But it is too late. Already footsteps are echoing along the gallery, which connects the two wings. <gasps> what can she do? Quick as thought, she hurries back to the young girl's room and starts shaking her awake. The hastily aroused household come trooping down the passage. They are all busily battering at Mrs. Inglethorpe's door. It occurs to nobody that Mrs. Cavendish has not arrived with the rest. But, and this is significant, I can find no one who saw her come from the other wing. Am I right, madam? That is correct. Thank you. This has cleared my mind of many misconceptions and left me free to see other facts in their true significance. The will. Then it was you, Mary, who destroyed the will. No. There is only one person who could possibly have destroyed that will. Mrs. Inglethorpe herself. Impossible. She had only made it out that very afternoon. Nevertheless, mon ami, it was Mrs. Inglethorpe. Because in no other way can you account for the fact that on one of the hottest days of the year, Mrs. Inglethorpe ordered a fire to be lighted in her room. The temperature on that day, messieurs, was 80 degrees in the shade. Yet, Mrs. Inglethorpe ordered a fire. Why? Because she wished to destroy something and could think of no other way. You will remember that, in consequence of the war economics practiced at Styles, no waste paper was thrown away. There was therefore no means of destroying a thick document such as a will. The moment I heard of a fire being lighted in Mrs. Inglethorpe's room, I leaped to the conclusion that it was to destroy some important document, possibly a will. So. The discovery of the charred fragment in the grate was no surprise to me. I did not, of course, know at the time that the will in question had only been made this afternoon, and I will admit that. When I learned that fact, I fell into a grievous error. I came to the conclusion that Mrs. Inglethorpe's determination to destroy her will arose as a direct consequence of the quarrel she had that afternoon, and that therefore the quarrel took place after, and not before, the making of the will. 
Here, as we know, I was wrong, and I was forced to abandon that idea. I faced the problem from a new standpoint. Now, at four o'clock, Dorcas overheard her mistress saying angrily, You need not think that any fear of publicity or scandal between husband and wife will deter me. I conjectured, and conjectured rightly, that these words were addressed not to her husband, but to Mr. John Cavendish. At five o'clock, an hour later, she uses almost the same words, but the standpoint is different. She admits to Dorcas, I don't know what to do. Scandal between husband and wife is a dreadful thing. At four o'clock, she has been angry, but completely in control. Whereas at five o'clock, she is in violent distress and speaks of having a great shock. Looking at the matter psychologically, I drew one deduction, which I was convinced was correct. The second scandal she spoke of was not the same as the first, and it concerned herself. But that's how it happened, sir. Upon my word. Let us reconstruct. At four o'clock, Mrs. Inglethorpe quarrels with her son and threatens to denounce him to his wife, who, by the way, overheard the greater part of the conversation. At 4.30, Mrs. Inglethorpe, in consequence of a conversation on the validity of wills, makes a will in favor of her husband, which the two gardeners witness. At five o'clock, Dorcas finds her mistress in a state of considerable agitation with a slip of paper. A letter, Dorcas thinks, in her hand, and it is then that she orders the fire in her room to be lighted. Presumably, then, between 4.30 and 5 o'clock, something has occurred to occasion a complete revolution of feeling, since she is now as anxious to destroy the will as she was before to make it. What was that something? Terrible blow to him. She was quite alone during that half hour. Nobody entered or left that boudoir. What then occasioned this sudden change of sentiment? <laughs> One can only guess, but I believe my guess to be correct. Mrs. Inglethorpe had no stamps in her desk. We know this because later she asked Dorcas to bring her some. Now, in the opposite corner of the room stood her husband's desk, locked. She was anxious to find some stamps, and according to my theory... She tried her own keys in the desk. That one of them fitted, I know. She therefore opened the desk, and in searching for the stamps, she came across something else. That slip of paper which Dorcas saw in her hand, and which assuredly was never meant for Mrs. Inglethorpe's eyes. On the other hand, Mrs. Cavendish believed that the slip of paper to which her mother-in-law clung so tenaciously was a written proof of her own husband's infidelity. She demanded it from Mrs. Inglethorpe, who assured her quite truly that it had nothing to do with that matter. Mrs. Cavendish did not believe her. She thought that Mrs. Inglethorpe 
was shielding her stepson. Now, Mrs. Cavendish is a very resolute woman, and behind her mask of reserve, she was madly jealous of her husband. She determined to get hold of that paper at all costs, and in this resolution, chance came to her aid. She happened to pick up the key of Mrs. Inglethorpe's dispatch case, which had been lost that morning. She knew that her mother-in-law invariably kept all important papers in this particular case. Mrs. Cavendish, therefore, made her plans as only a woman driven desperate through jealousy could have done. Sometime in the evening, she unbolted the door leading into Mademoiselle Cynthia's room. Possibly she applied oil to the hinges, for I found that it opened quite noiselessly when I tried it. She put off her project until the early hours of the morning as being safer, since the servants were accustomed to hearing her move about her room at that time. She dressed completely in her land kit and made her way quietly through Mademoiselle Cynthia's room into that of Mrs. Inglethorpe. But I should have woken up if anyone had come through my room. Not if you were drugged, Mademoiselle. Drugged? You remember that through all the tumult and noise next door, Mademoiselle Cynthia slept. That admitted of two possibilities. Either her sleep was feigned, which I did not believe, or her unconsciousness was indeed by artificial means. With this latter idea in my mind, I examined all the coffee cups most carefully, remembering that it was Mrs. Cavendish who had brought Mademoiselle Cynthia her coffee the night before. I took a sample from each cup and had them analyzed, with no result. I had counted the cups carefully, in the event of one having been removed. Six persons had taken coffee and six cups were duly found. I had to confess myself mistaken. Then I discovered that I had been guilty of a very grave oversight. Coffee had been brought in for seven persons, not six, for Dr. Bowerstein had been there that evening. This changed the face of the whole affair, for there was now one cup missing. The servants noticed nothing, since Annie, the housemaid, who took in the coffee, brought in seven cups, not knowing that Mr. Inglethorpe never drank it, whereas Dorcas, who cleared them away the following morning, found six as usual, or strictly speaking, she found five, as the sixth one was the one smashed on the floor in the room. I was confident that the missing cup was that of Mademoiselle Cynthia, I had an additional reason for that belief in the fact that all the cups found contained sugar, which Mademoiselle Cynthia never took in her coffee. My attention was attracted by the story of Annie about some salt on the tray of cocoa, which she took every night to Mrs. Inglethorpe's room. I accordingly secured a sample of that cocoa and sent it to be analyzed. But that had already been done by Dr. Bowerstein. Technically, 
I only had it analyzed for the presence of strychnine. I did not test for anything else. Exactly. For a narcotic. He did not have it tested as I did for a narcotic. Wait, why are we listening to what Dr. Baustein says anyway? He is the one who should be sitting under the scrutiny of Jap. I was released, and respectfully, I was never detained on suspicion of murder, Mr. Cavendish. No, not murder. You see, one has to remember the proximity to the coast. I would never kill anyone. I have other business in your small village, it is true. Things that require my complete discretion, shall we say. Surely you all must have considered it odd that such a brilliant specialist would be hidden here in St. Mary's instead of enjoying a vibrant career in London? One of glamour and money. I say, do you mean espionage? There is a war. We must all do our part. I was born in Germany, remember? So I speak English and German fluently. The British government has found this rather useful to the war effort, though I may say no more. That's why you were always sneaking around. But what good could Mary be to any war effort? I enjoyed Mrs. Cavendish's company very much, and it was useful to have gossip cloud any suspicion of any of my other activities. I apologize to you, Mrs. Cavendish, and to you, Mr. Cavendish, for any hurt I may have caused you. And I think we were all fortunate that your activities led you to Styles on that night, or a murder may have gone unnoticed. Indeed. I am sorry for my accusation then, Doctor. Monsieur Poirot, please continue. What were you saying? The missing coffee cup and the narcotic. Uh, yes. Here is the analyst's report. Mrs. Cavendish administered a safe but effectual narcotic to both Mrs. Inglethorpe and Mademoiselle Cynthia. And it is possible that she had a mauvais couture in consequence. Imagine her feelings when her mother-in-law is suddenly taken ill and dies. And immediately after, she hears the word poison. She has believed that the sleeping draught she administered was perfectly harmless. But there is no doubt that for one terrible moment, she must have feared that Mrs. Inglethorpe's death lay at her door. She is seized with panic, and under its influence, she hurries downstairs and quickly drops the coffee cup and saucer used by Mademoiselle Cynthia into a large brass vase, where it is discovered later by Monsieur Lawrence. The remains of the cocoa she dared not touch. Too many eyes upon her. Guess at her relief when strychnine is mentioned, and she discovers that after all the tragedy, it is not her doing. We are now able to account for the symptoms of strychnine poisoning being so long in making their appearance. A narcotic taken with strychnine will delay the action of the poison for some hours. All you have said is quite true, Monsieur Poirot. It was the most awful hour of my life. I shall never forget it. But you are wonderful. I understand now. I see everything now. The drugged cocoa, 
taken on top of the poisoned coffee. Ample accounts for the delay. Exactly. But was the coffee poisoned or was it not? We come to a little difficulty here, since Mrs. Inglethorpe never drank it. What? Come again. I say. What on earth? No. No. You will remember my speaking of a stain on the carpet in Mrs. Inglethorpe's room? There were some peculiar points about that stain. It was still damp, it exhaled a strong odor of coffee, and embedded in the nap of the carpet, I found some little splinters of china. What had happened was plain to me, for not two minutes before I had placed my little case on the table near the window, and the table, tilting up, had deposited upon the floor on precisely the identical spot, in exactly the same way Mrs. Inglethorpe had laid down her cup of coffee on reaching her room the night before, and the treacherous table had played her the same trick. What happened next is mere guesswork on my part, but I should say that Mrs. Inglethorpe picked up the broken cup and placed it on the table by the bed. Feeling in need of a stimulant of some kind, she heated up her cocoa and drank it off then and there. Now, now we are faced with a new problem. We know the cocoa contained no strychnine. The coffee was never drunk, yet the strychnine must have been administered between 7 and 9 o'clock that evening. What third medium was there? A medium so suitable for disguising the taste of strychnine that it is extraordinary no one has thought of it. Her medicine? Brother! Her medicine. Do you mean that the murderer introduced the strychnine into her tonic? There was no need to introduce it. It was already there, in the mixture. The strychnine that killed Mrs. Inglethorpe was the identical strychnine prescribed by Dr. Wilkins. To make that clear to you, I will read you an extract from a book on dispensing which I found in the dispensary of the Red Cross Hospital at Tadminster. The following prescription has become famous in textbooks. Strychnine sulfide, one grain. Potassium bromide, six drams. Aqua ad, eight fluid ounces. Fiat mistura. The solution deposits in a few hours the greater part of the strychnine salt as an insoluble bromide in transparent crystals. A lady in England lost her life by taking a similar mixture. The precipitated strychnine collected at the bottom, and in taking the last dose, she swallowed nearly all of it. Now there was, of course... No bromide in Dr. Wilkins' prescription, but you will remember that I mentioned an empty box of bromide powders. One or two of those powders introduced into the full bottle of medicine would effectually precipitate the strychnine, as the book describes, and cause it to be taken in the last dose. You will learn later that the person who usually poured out Mrs. Inglethorpe's medicine was always extremely careful not to shake the bottle, but to leave the sediment at the bottom of it undisturbed. Throughout the case, there had been evidence that the tragedy was intended to take place on Monday evening. On that day, Mrs. Inglethorpe's bell wire was neatly cut, 
and on Monday evening, Mademoiselle Cynthia was spending the night with friends, so that Mrs. Inglethorpe would have been quite alone in the right wing, completely shut off from help of any kind, and would have died in all probability before medical aid could have been summoned. But in her hurry to be in time for the village entertainment, Mrs. Inglethorpe forgot to take her medicine, and the next day she lunched away from home so that the last and fatal dose was actually taken 24 hours later than had been anticipated by the murderer. And it is owing to that delay that the final proof, the last link in the chain, is now in my hands. What are those? <laughs> Three strips of paper. Hardly seems worthy getting all worked up about. A letter in the murderer's own handwriting, Miami. Had it been a little clearer in its terms, it is possible that Mrs. Inglethorpe, warned in time, would have escaped. As it was, she realized her danger, but not the manner of it. Dearest Evelyn, you will be anxious at hearing nothing. It is all right, only it will be tonight instead of last night. You understand. There's a good time coming once the old woman is dead and out of the way. No one can possibly bring home the crime to me. That idea of yours about the bromide was a stroke of genius. But we must be very circumspect. A false step. Here, my friends, the letter breaks off. Doubtless the writer was interrupted, but there can be no question as to his identity. We all know this handwriting, and we know... You devil! Alfie! You bastard! No! How did you get that? Messieurs, mesdames, let me introduce you to the murderer, Mr. Alfred Inglethorpe. to you, Mr. Poirot. Wouldn't have copped to it. Well, they both gave themselves away there, eh? Apologies to you, Mr. Cavendish. I think you owe Mr. Poirot here a hearty handshake. Well, I'll be seeing you. Poirot, you old devil. How on earth did you know? And what do you mean by deceiving me, uh, us, this way? Yes, Poirot, out with it. Dorcas, Annie, please fetch us some tea. Yes, ma'am. Monsieur Poirot, I can't thank you enough. So it was Alfred Inglethorpe all along. I never would have thought Evie... Yes, they hated each other. Sometimes hate can disguise itself as something else. Can it? <clears throat> How delightful. Lawrence, won't you sit by me? Won't you enlighten us, Monsieur Poirot? I will have to be candid, madame. I trust that is acceptable to you both. We can handle it together. Thank you, darling. I was always adamant that I did not want Mr. Inglethorpe arrested at that specific moment in time. I always suspected the man, but he was too eager to be arrested, too eager to be caught. But uh, to begin at the beginning, whoever else might be, 
benefit by Mrs. Inglethorpe's death, her husband would benefit the most. There was no getting away from that. When I went up to Styles with you that first day, I had no idea as to how the crime had been committed. But from what I knew of Mr. Inglethorpe, I fancied that it would be very hard to find anything to connect him with it. When I arrived at the chateau, I realized at once that it was Mrs. Inglethorpe who had burnt the will. I should have known when she ordered a fire in summer. Begging your pardon, sir. You are not to be blamed, Dorcas. Not in the least. Then there was so much evidence against Inglethorpe that I was inclined to think he must be innocent. Which, of course, was their intent. What changed your mind? Two things, and my apologies, Madame Cavendish. One, when I interviewed the villagers and found out that it was John who had been seen showing interest in Mrs. Rakes, not Alfred. I am so sorry. We've both been such fools. This is our new start. No apologies. I'm so ashamed. And the more efforts I made to clear him, the more he tried to get himself arrested. But why? It doesn't make sense to... Because, Monsieur Lawrence, it is the law of your country that a man once acquitted can never be tried again for the same offence. Ah, but it was clever, his idea. Assuredly, he is a man of method. See here, he knew that in his position he was bound to be suspected, so he conceived the exceedingly clever idea of preparing a lot of manufactured evidence against himself. He wished to be arrested. He would then produce his irreproachable alibi, and, hey, presto, he was safe for life. But I still don't see how he managed to prove his alibi, and he had to go to the chemist shop. Because he did not go to the chemist shop. Then how? Because it was Miss Howard who went to the chemist shop. Evie? But certainly. Who else? It was most easy for her. She is of a good height, her voice is deep and manly, Moreover, remember, she and Inglethorpe are cousins, and there is a distinct resemblance between them, especially in their gait and bearing. It was simplicity itself. They are a clever pair. Bon, I will reconstruct for you as far as possible. I am inclined to think that Miss Howard was the mastermind in the affair. You remember her once mentioning that her father was a doctor? Possibly she dispensed his medicines for him, or she may have taken the idea from one of the many books lying about when Mademoiselle Cynthia was studying for her exam. Anyway, she was familiar with the fact that the addition of a bromide to a mixture containing strychnine would cause the precipitation of the latter. Probably the idea came to her quite suddenly. Mrs. Inglethorpe had a box of bromide powders, which she occasionally took at night. What could be easier than quietly to dissolve one or more of those powders in Mrs. Inglethorpe's large-sized bottle of medicine when it came from the chemist? The risk is practically nil. The tragedy will not take place until nearly a fortnight later, 
If anyone has seen either of them touching the medicine, they would have forgotten it by that time. Miss Howard would have engineered her quarrel and departed from the house. The lapse of time and her absence will defeat all suspicion. <laughs> yes, it was a clever idea. If they had left it alone, it is possible the crime might never have been brought home to them. But they were not satisfied. They tried to be too clever, and that was their undoing. Go on. They arranged a plan to throw suspicion on John Cavendish by buying strychnine at the village chemist and signing the register in his handwriting. On Monday, Mrs. Inglethorpe will take the last dose of her medicine. On Monday, therefore, at six o'clock, Alfred Inglethorpe arranges to be seen by a number of people at a spot far removed from the village. Miss Howard has previously made up a cock-and-bull story about him and Mrs. Rakes to account for his holding his tongue afterwards. At six o'clock, Miss Howard, disguised as Alfred Inglethorpe, enters the chemist shop with her story about a dog, obtains the strychnine, and writes the name of Alfred Inglethorpe in John's handwriting, which she had previously studied carefully. But, as it will never do if John too can prove an alibi, she writes him an anonymous note, still copying his handwriting, which takes him to a remote spot where it is exceedingly unlikely that anyone will see him. So far, all goes well. Miss Howard goes back to Middlingham. Alfred Inglethorpe returns to Stiles. There is nothing that can compromise him in any way since it is Miss Howard who has the strychnine, which, after all, is only wanted as a blind to throw suspicion on John Cavendish. But now, a hitch occurs. Mrs. Inglethorpe does not take her medicine that night. The broken bell, Cynthia's absence, arranged by Inglethorpe through his wife, all these are wasted. And then he makes his slip. Mrs. Inglethorpe is out, and he sits down to write to his accomplice, who he fears may be in a panic at the non-success of their plan. It is probable that Mrs. Inglethorpe returned earlier than he expected. Caught in the act and somewhat flurried, he hastily shuts and locks his desk. He fears that if he remains in the room, he may have to open it again and that Mrs. Inglethorpe might catch sight of the letter before he could snatch it up. So, he goes out and walks in the woods, little dreaming that Mrs. Inglethorpe will open his desk and discover the incriminating document. But this, as we know, is what happened. Mrs. Inglethorpe reads it and becomes aware of the perfidy of her husband and Evelyn Howard, though, unfortunately, the sentence about the bromides conveys no warning to her mind. She knows that she is in danger, but is ignorant of where the danger lies. She decides to say nothing to her husband, but sits down and writes to her solicitor, asking him to come on the morrow, and she also determines to destroy immediately the will which she has just made. 
she keeps the fatal letter. It was to discover that letter then that Inglethorpe forced the lock of the dispatch case? Yes, and from the enormous risk he ran, we can see how fully he realized its importance. That letter accepted, there was absolutely nothing to connect him with the crime. There's only one thing I can't make out. Why didn't he destroy it at once, once he got hold of it? Because he did not dare take the biggest risk of all. That of keeping it on his own person. I don't understand. Look at it from his point of view. I have discovered that there were only five short minutes in which he could have taken it. The five minutes immediately before our own arrival on the scene. For before that time, Annie was brushing the stairs and would have seen anyone who passed going to the right wing. Figure to yourself the scene. He enters the room unlocking the door by means of one of the other door keys. They were all much alike. He hurries to the dispatch case. It is locked, and the keys are nowhere to be seen. That is a terrible blow to him, for it means that his presence in the room cannot be concealed as he had hoped. But he sees clearly that everything must be risked for the sake of that damning piece of evidence. Quickly, he forces the lock with a penknife and turns over the papers until he finds what he is looking for. By now, a fresh dilemma arises. He dare not keep that piece of paper on him. He may be seen leaving the room. He may be searched. If the paper is found on him, it is certain doom. Probably at this minute, too, he hears the sounds below of Mr. Wells and John leaving the boudoir. He must act quickly. Where can he hide this terrible slip of paper? The contents of the waste paper basket are kept, and in any case, are sure to be examined. There are no means of destroying it, and he dare not keep it. He looks round the room, and he sees... What do you all think? In a moment, he has torn the letter into long, thin strips, and rolling them up into spills, he thrusts them hurriedly in amongst the other spills in the vase on the mantelpiece. No one would think of looking there, and he will be able, at his leisure, to come back and destroy this solitary piece of evidence against him. Then, all the time, it was in the spill vase in Mrs. Inglethorpe's bedroom. Right under our very noses. Yes, mademoiselle. That is where I discovered my last link. And I owe that very fortunate discovery to my dear friend and partner, Hastings. To me? Yes. Do you remember telling me that my hand shook as I was straightening the ornaments on the mantelpiece? Yes, but I don't see how... No, but I saw. Do you know, my friend... I remembered earlier in the morning, when we had been there together, I had straightened all the objects on the mantelpiece. And if they were already straightened, there would be no need to straighten them again, unless, in the meantime, someone else had touched them. Ah, so that is the explanation of your extraordinary behavior. <laughs> you rushed down to Styles and found it still there. That's why you forgot your hat. Yes, and it was a race for time. 
but I still can't understand why Inglethorpe was such a fool as to leave it there when he had plenty of opportunity to destroy it. Ah, but that is where all of you helped me. You all had your eyes open like hawks. With ten amateur detectives assisting, he had no privacy or time. Couldn't Evie have helped him, since she was his accomplice? Ah, but Miss Howard did not know of the existence of the papers. They were supposed to be deadly enemies, and until you, John, were safely convicted, they neither of them dare risk a meeting. When did you suspect Evie? When I discovered that she had told a lie at the inquest about the letters she had received from Mrs. Inglethorpe. What lie? The letter. The one she read. Do you recall its appearance? More or less, I think. You will recollect then that Mrs. Inglethorpe wrote a very distinctive hand and left large, clear spaces between her words. But if you look at the date at the top of the letter, you will notice that July 17th is quite different in this respect. Do you see what I mean? That letter was not written on the 17th, but on the 7th, the day after Miss Howard's departure. The one was written in before the 7th to turn it into the 17th. Why? That is exactly what I asked myself. Why does Miss Howard suppress the letter written on the 17th and produce this faked one instead? Because she did not wish to show the letter of the 17th. But after that, you gave me two reasons why Miss Howard could not have committed the crime. And very good reasons, too. For a long time, they were a stumbling block to me until I remembered a very significant fact. That she and Alfred Inglethorpe were cousins. She could not have committed the crime single-handed, but the reasons against that did not debar her from being an accomplice. And then there was that rather over-vehement hatred of hers. It concealed a very opposite emotion, as Monsieur Lawrence pointed out earlier. Hatred is often concealing another very different emotion. There was undoubtedly a tie of passion between them long before he came to Styles. They had already arranged their infamous plot that he should marry this rich but rather foolish old lady, induce her to make a will leaving her money to him, and then gain their ends by a very cleverly conceived crime. If all had gone as they planned, they would probably have left England and lived together on their poor victim's money. It's awful. They are a very astute and unscrupulous pair. While suspicion was to be directed against him, she would be making quiet preparations for a very different denouement. She arrives from Middlingham with all the compromising items in her possession. No suspicion attaches to her. No notice is paid to her coming and going in the house. She hides the strychnine and glasses in John's room. She puts the beard in the attic. She will see to it that sooner or later they are duly discovered. I don't quite see why they tried to fix the blame on you, John. It would have been much easier for them to bring the crime home to Lawrence. 
No offense, old chap. None taken. Yes, but that was mere chance. All the evidence against Lawrence arose out of pure accident. It must, in fact, have been distinctly annoying to the pair of schemers. I didn't realize how suspicious I was making myself out to be. Sometimes we go to great lengths to protect those we care about, mon ami. What does he mean, Lawrence? He was protecting someone I suspected myself at first. Someone with access to poisons, who had made up the bromide powders, and who Dorcas informed us was excellent at impression and theatrics. I would never imply such- You thought it was me? He did, mademoiselle. He almost went to the docks to protect you. Oh. How wonderful. I'm sorry, Cynthia, for doubting you. Monsieur Poirot, I did tell one lie. When I entered the mater's room and saw over her body that- Cynthia's door was unbolted. You also crushed the coffee cup because you knew she had gone up with it in your mother's room the night before. And then you beat your chest protesting natural causes to all who would listen. But you were so mean to me. I thought you were in love with John. I was hurt. <laughs> John? <laughs> but what about the extra coffee cup? I lied about that too. I thought if I found it, it would prove Cynthia wasn't the killer. I'm so sorry to have been such an ass to all of you. What about the Mater's last words? They were what we first suspected them to be. An accusation against her husband. I'll be damned. Monsieur Poirot, you've literally saved our lives. We can't thank you enough. I am forever in your debt. As I walked with Poirot away from Styles and we turned the proverbial page on this case, I glanced back. Mary Cavendish was staring adoringly into the face of her husband, and he gazed equally adoringly into her face. Cynthia was chatting into Lawrence, and he smiled into her eyes. I sighed. Never mind, mon ami. We shall hunt again. I am certain this is just the start of our adventures together. And there will be other women you can save as well. Poirot, I, I don't know what you mean. But my dapper little friend merely smiled into his moustache and turned away, with a satisfied bounce in his step. Thank you for listening to Murder in Your Ear. We appreciate you. To receive access to specialized content, and to continue to support our quality programming, we invite you to visit our brand new Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash murder in your ear. That's www.patreon.com forward slash murder in your ear. And as always, find us on Facebook and Instagram at NRM Performance and Twitter at Murder Ear. <laughs>